I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. This is an online recording given current restrictions, but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash when Saturday comes. Harry, for our 20th birthday, which celebratory snacks are on the table this time? I've just gone for I've gone for some classics. I've got some I've got Lion original hard gums fruit salad. Um, they are very hard, I can assure you. And uh, and then I've also got some uh, Maynard's wine gums, but I've gone for the tangy variety. I think the ta- I think the, the addition of tangy, I don't know when it happened. I'm thinking the 1990s, do you reckon? I think that's one mm. of the greatest inventions of the, the end towards the end of the 20th century. Far better than the smartphone or any of that stuff is the addition mm. of tangy to sweets. Um, and also, I'm a big fan of the um, the German Ritter Sport bars. I don't know quite what sport's about, what, what the sport element of them is. I've never worked out. They're square, but I don't know whether that makes them more sporting. And I saw a couple of new varieties, one which is called the colourful variety, Hula Hula Coconut Wafer Chocolate, which I have to say is a kind of tropical taste. It's a bit disgusting. But then I also got the um, Cocoa Selection from Ritter Sport, which is 74% intense with cocoa mass from Peru. So every time I have a little square of that, I think of Hector Chumpitas. You should, you should try and say Hector Chumpitas when you've got a mouthful of it. <laughs> that, would, that would be particularly difficult with a wine gum tangy, actually. I think that would... I think it is the only square chocolate. I'm just thinking through the chocolates. And it is the only you're thinking going through? I think it is, but what, why that makes it sporting, I'm not really sure. I don't, I'm not, I've never really worked it out. I suppose it would fit in the pocket of your shorts, maybe. I don't know. I know you say it has a thing on the back now, which I've never really read, where it says... At the back, there's an instruction. It says, Nick Pack, break here to open. Uh, not quite what that means, but anyway, there you are. That's what it says. Whether it says it on the hula hula variety. Yes, indeed, it does. Nick Pack, break here to open. It's a special, so it's got a special pack. 
And um, anyway, there you are. They were both bought actually in the, in the in the services uh, near Montrose. So that's uh, you know, so they're adding an <laughs> added an added exciting continental element to them there. And some happy news about fans getting back to Northern League games. Have you got any fixtures planned? Yes, I'm going tonight actually to uh, Dunstan versus Blythe Spartans, uh, the friendly match there. Well, I think I'm going because they've they, it's first come first served with a capacity of two hundred. So uh, and, uh, and it's also they're going to take they're going to take people's temperature before they go in, which is sort of adds a, it adds a, an element of tension now when you go to anything. Whenever I see that gun that they use to take your temperature before I go in a pub or something, I'm always like I, I start to, I break out in a sweat, which isn't really a help. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so yes, I, I'm hoping to go to Dunstan versus Blythe Farms if I get there early enough and aren't too haven't haven't run from the station. Um, and then I've got uh, Holt Whistle Jubilee versus Hexham in the Northern Alliance on Wednesday. And then the Northern League starts on the following Saturday. And I'm going to see Newcastle University against Tau Law, which even if I think they limit the capacity to 200, I think we'll be, we'll be OK there. I think they should take your temperature on the way out to see how the game has affected people. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, the problem for Dunstan and some of those te- the, the teams is that they haven't had any, fi- I don't think they've had any fixture lists until fairly recently. So they didn't even know when their season was going to start. So they've started their pre-season preparations with no idea of where they were actually, but the point at which their fitness was supposed to peak, they had no idea where where it was. So I think that they now, I think their first game is an FA Cup game, but it's quite quite well on into September. Do you think there'll be a moment when you suddenly think, great, it's back? Because for me, going to lower division Scottish football, it'll be hearing someone shout, let's get into these pricks. Yeah, I, I always like it that someone will shout, get involved, Lino. It's just bound to happen within in three minutes of the kickoff, I'm sure. So I'm relatively confident, particularly at Dunstan. The chairman normally shouts that out fairly regularly. Another standard one in non-league is when someone shouts, these are shite, because all the, all the opposing players to whom that's directed can hear, and you often get players turning round. I wonder if there'll be any new cries, such as, a, are you still in lockdown or something, referee? It could all have changed. <laughs> Andy, any wildlife, Neville Southall or other developments there? Uh, no, I've got an ant bait station, which is a development of sort. It's called Ant Stop! Exclamation mark. Uh, so it, the ants collect the, the sort of sticky stuff, which is poison, and take it back to their nest. So I watched a procession of them doing this earlier in the week. Resisted the temptation to do a TV wildlife narration, something like, you know, <laughs> And so the unsuspecting soldier ants are delivering sticky death to the queen. But it seems to be working so far, though earlier this morning I did see an ant go across my laptop screen. I suppose he might have been an outsider cast out from the nest a while ago, like a survivalist ant, in which case he's obviously the winner. But um don't really want ants on my laptop, though. What if they get into the hard drive? You know, replace all the text files with facts about ants. <laughs> Six pages in the next WSC. Commonly held myths about man's friend, the ant. <laughs> Other thing I've been doing um, over the last few weeks, uh, as, as sort of a lockdown development. Really, I keep forgetting that I've got eggs boiling. I only realise when I hear an explosion coming from the kitchen, that like eggshell everywhere. It's happened about three times recently. So I'm wondering if it might be a new mild strain of the virus, where the main symptom is that you forget you've got eggs boiling. If so, I don't think it's contagious. I think that that ant that's broken away on its own. Do you think that that's like the David Icke of ants? It's warned all the other ants. It's say it's warned them all, but they wouldn't listen. Yeah, it's building a metaphorical log cabin in my kitchen. (laughs) We're going to talk about issue 402 of When Saturday Comes in the next podcast, Andy, but as it'll include the annual season guide, can you confirm that fans of all clubs are as wildly optimistic and happy-go-lucky as usual? 
Yes, I think the general um, observation that people make is, you know, with a bit of luck, we could, we could get to mid-table, which I think is a good outlook <laughs> to have on life in general, really. Harry, the draw for the Scottish Betfred Cup may have escaped your attention, but Group A includes three Fife teams, Cowdenbeath, East Fife and Wraith Rovers. This has to constitute a group of death. What does that phrase bring to mind for you? Um, I think well, it was interesting. I, 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 there was a joke, wasn't there, about a group of debt, which I'm sure <laughs> whether that's applicable <laughs> to Fife, I don't know. Um, I suppose that the, the, the group of death was a, I think it was coined by a Mexican journalist for the 1970 World Cup, um, the England, Brazil, Czechoslovakia, and Romania group, largely I think because it, apart from the fact that there were quite some quite good teams in that group, but mainly because it was all South American and European teams. Um, the person that kind of calls to mind to me is Omar Boras, who was the sometimes referred to as Professor Omar Boras, who was manager of the Uruguay team in 1986, who were in another group of death, Group E, um, with West Germany, Denmark and Scotland, of course. Um, and Omar Boras is fantastically described as he's described as a former PE teacher and fitness obsessive. But I don't know what what. PE teacher isn't a fitness obsessive. I don't know if anyone had a PE teacher, he would say, oh, it's a bit hot today, lads. Let's just loaf, slouch about, shall we? He, he was involved with um, Uruguay for quite a while because there's actually photographed. I think he was the trainer at the 66 World Cup. Um, and obviously Uruguay and that World Cup were quite kind of violent and nasty. They, they'd kind of come into the tournament. I think they'd peaked quite early because they were South American champions and had done very well, but then they'd started to kind of go off the boil a bit. Anyway, they played in a particularly um, violent manner. Um, indeed, after the before they played Scotland, I think Pierre Litbarski actually said to the press that he thought that Gordon... He feared for the life of Gordon Strachan um, in that game. Um, and, and they did get a player sent off, I think, inside about 50 seconds against Scotland, um, which caused Omar Boras to uh, to get very upset. And he said, the group of death, yes, there was a murderer on the field today, the referee. <laughs> and later on, the Times said that Uruguay have cast themselves as the Draculas of the tournament. So obviously a fitting place for them, the group of death. And what does group of death mean to you, Andy? Uh, well, I actually went to a game in the group of death, Euro 96. Uh, Germany and Czech Republic are the two finalists then, plus Italy and Russia. And I went to see the Czechs versus Italy Anfield, which I mainly remember for there's a pre-match event in Stanley Park, um, which is the first time I'd ever heard Duncan Ferguson speak. He was releasing a load of balloons as part of a ceremony. There were some Italian guys there dressed in medieval outfits who doing like a kind of flag display and waving banners and stuff. And the presenter asked Duncan Ferguson if, if, if he'd ever released balloons before or something. And I remember him saying, no, but I've played with a few. <laughs> um, Italy lost the game. I remember seeing these disconsolate lads in the medieval costume sat at the other end of the ground. Probably what, if any of them had been long bowmen rather than flag wavers, they could still have had an impact on the game, I guess. <laughs> um, the time that England could plausibly have been said to have been in a group of death at the World Cup, I suppose the 2002 World Cup with... Argentina, Sweden and Nigeria. The Argentina, of course, turned out to be very poor. And in 2014 in Brazil was Uruguay and Italy. Of course, it was the fourth team in the group there that um, Costa Rica went on to win the group and got to the quarterfinals. So more like a group of dearth, as somebody probably wrote at the time. <laughs> There's also those, the group that was the, the reverse of the group of death, I suppose. Uh, World Cup 1990 with England, Ireland, Holland and Egypt. 
um, which, which were England Ireland was a, a terrible draw in which the German TV commentator apparently said, no, you're not watching Coventry versus Luton. This is supposed to be the World Cup finals. <laughs> no, no, no disrespect intended to fans of Coventry or Luton. Those also, I suppose, Euro 2000, uh, England, Germany, Portugal, Romania were um, England and Germany, the two who didn't get out of the group. England lost to, to Portugal after being uh, 2-0 up. They beat a very poor German team who had a quite scary skinhead centre forward called Karsten Janka at the time. But I remember the win over Germany at the time was rapturously received as if it was some sort of great national healing or something. In fact, it was just you know, a narrow win over a not very good team and they, they didn't progress from the group anyway. I saw some games from the group. There was a group in, in the 1998 World Cup, Group D, which had Nigeria, Spain, Paraguay and Bulgaria. And Javier Clemente was the manager of Spain. He said... It's not a group of death, but a group of heart attacks. <laughs> and I think was it Javier Clemente was the, the manager who sweated a lot, wasn't he? No, that was that was his successor, uh, Camacho. Oh, was Camacho? Ante- was it? Antonio oh, well, Camacho. there we are. He was, he was very Camacho sweaty. Did, Camacho did look like a man who was on his way to some massive. <laughs> Ill advisedly stood with his arms up over the dugout, so hanging on to like the top of the dugout, so you could see the big sweat patches under his arms. Yeah, gradually expanding as the game went on. I mean, he would have, he would have been good. He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have wanted him in a group of heart attacks. That's what I'd say. I think it was Camacho, and maybe I should look up. I've, there's probably a book somewhere, Spanish managers who sweat. There's probably one of those listings on the internet. Twenty sweatiest managers. Yeah, it's probably a feature in the Times. <laughs> He must just be very grateful that he wasn't a manager in the COVID temperature gun era, I suppose. Well, that's right. He'd have been sent, he'd have been sent straight away. Well, another example of the sort of phrase that was widely used at tournaments I associate with World Cups, which the media used to use quite a bit, was Danger Man. Uh, it was named after the TV series in the 60s starring Patrick McGoohan, who's later in The Prisoner. You see it a lot in football writing from kind of the late 60s. England's danger man then was Martin Peters. I don't know if he got an official badge declaring that or, or maybe like a stick-on tattoo or something. But in the commentaries, the 1970 World Cup, which was referred to earlier, the group of death at that, that World Cup, England-Romania game, the Romanian centre-forward, uh, Floria Dimitrikais, is identified as the danger man and David Coleman actually says it a couple of times in the commentary he'll say here's the danger man but then danger man gradually just faded away I suppose as the memory of the tv series kind of because it was early 60s faded away in the 70s people stopped using it but when I was a kid I just assumed that every team had a danger man someone who was who was officially designated as, as that I think it still crops up in programs I'm pretty sure that Carlisle's program the opposition you know the page on the opposition team it has danger man or maybe it has one to watch which is another another of those phrases, isn't it? One to watch. I heard one the other day that you don't hear anywhere else, which was that the one team were on the front foot, and I liked that. I'm going to try and be more on the front foot in my life. I think. Well, that's that's out of cricket, though, isn't it? That's you know. I suppose. That, I suppose a, yes. So wrong again. But that's what that's weird is that in football now they use phrases from other sports, so they they <laughs> they sort of saying it's time for him to step up to the plate. No footballer needs to step up to a plate. There is no plate in football. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Prescott Cables FC, Dubbin, Steve Chettle, and it's landed on 
Football People with Better Known Relatives. Quite a long title that's fitted into the random generator. I suppose they could get that on the wheel. It's amazing. It's a very tiny font, isn't it, if you look carefully? Andy, (laughs) what what or who does that bring to mind for you? Oh, I was just disappointed we didn't do Prescott Cables there. Actually, my, my, my cousin Bobby lives just near the ground. I could have said that. I've said that now anyway. Um, <laughs> that was one of my favourite programme things at Dunstan. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Tadcast or something. It, 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 it was some player that they'd signed from Portugal who'd previously played for Sporting Lisbon, and it said, sign for Taddy in time to make his debut against Prescott Cables. Thought, <laughs> That's what he dreamed of when he was a kid. He maybe met, he'd met my cousin Bobby. He might do. He probably would have seen. And he told him, "Oh, Prescott Cables are the team to play against." <laughs> Forty-five seconds on Prescott Cables. Seven minutes to go, and then we'll do football people with better-known relatives. Andy, <laughs> <laughs> what does that bring to mind for you? Uh, well, Roy Dwight, uh, manager of Tooting and Mitchum, when they had their best ever FA Cup run, losing in the fourth round to Bradford City in 1976, he got a bit of extra publicity at the time because he was a cousin of Elton John. Um, the fathers were brothers. He had an earlier connection to Tooting because he played against them, part of the Forest team that, that uh, played Tooting a third round time, 1959. And he went on to score in that year's cup final, which Forest won, but then broke his leg. There's that period when there were several cup finals in the year uh, in a row where there were bad injuries to players. He stretched it off. Forest finished with 10 men, but and that affected his career. But later on, he came back as a, as a non-league manager. Um, as a lot of us would probably have heard... Um, this thing about Scott and Stefan Oakes, both of whom played for several clubs, uh, both started with Leicester, but um, Scott played a lot for Luton and Stefan was Wickham. Their dad, Trevor, was a guitarist in the 70s, I don't know what you call them, retro rock and rollers, shawaddy-waddy, kind of teddy boys from Leicester. Um, it's debatable whether their dad, Trevor, was actually better known than his sons, but the connection used to be mentioned a lot on TV and probably match reports. Things like, you know, Scott Oakes' father knew all about getting to number one. Can Scott now help Luton get to the top of the second division um there's also of course harry mcshane father of the actor ian mcshane who uh, made a decent job of impersonating footballers in the film yesterday's hero and uh harry mcshane was one of those players who lost a lot of his career to the war but he played for man united among others and won a title with them in the early 50s and was later stadium announcer at old trafford um and there's also gil heron father of the musician gil scott heron he's from jamaica and played in Canada and the USA and in the 50s at the time there wasn't a national professional league but he joined Celtic and was the first ever black player played a few games from only one league game I think but he was only he was already 29 when he when he joined them so he didn't get much of an opportunity to build his career though he did meet um, his wife not Gil Scott Heron's mother but his second wife when he was in Scotland and they went on to have three kids so it was obviously uh, it was worth his while um his six months at Parkhead was uh, was was worth doing. I remember a detail of Roy Dwight that he watched the second half on television of the cup final from his hospital bed, which I found it felt almost impossible in 1959. Really, I think that's a, a wrong detail that I've read somewhere. You'd think he'd be heavily anaesthetised at least if he'd broken his leg. I just couldn't couldn't imagine in a 1959 hospital having a television that could be wheeled to the end of his bed, but perhaps it was Booper. It might be one of those hospitals with a, 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 one of those televisions with a, you know, it was a tiny screen and an enormous cabinet and they're really tiny screens. You <laughs> probably hardly watch any of it anyway. <laughs> and and if you if you put a shilling in it, you could watch some of the match possibly. And for you, Harry. Well, it was funny they mentioned because Shawadi Wadi. I'm pretty sure that Dion Dublin's dad played saxophone. He was, I think he was a session saxophone mm. player, and I think he played with Shawadi Wadi. And then the drummer from Shawadi Wadi, who I think was, was he called Romeo Challenger? 
Yes, he was. He, yes. I think he might have played for Leicester City or been on Leicester City's books. And then his son was um, a British high jumper in the British Olympic high jumper. So Shawadi Wadi did have a profound effect on British sport, obviously. <laughs> um, and I was thinking of um, Steve Gatting, who played over 400 league games for Arsenal, Brighton and Charlton. Uh, he was a sort of centre-half midfielder. And I did actually play cricket with him once because he was quite a decent cricketer. But he was nowhere near as famous as his brother, Mike Gatting who had been a footballer. I think he was a goalkeeper. Um, but anyway, went on to become a, a, a cricketer, Captain England. And I was going to say, he's sort of famous for captain because he captained England to an Ashes victory in Australia, which was quite a rare feat. But also then I realised that when you look through his career, he was sort of never out of the papers, really. Because um, he had his famous argument with the Pakistani umpire, Shaka Rama. He was, fi- he was sacked as England captain after an alleged fling with a barmaid in a Nottinghamshire hotel. And he was bowled by Shane Warne's ball of the century. And he appeared in the arches himself, um, which Steve Gatting didn't manage, despite all his league appearances. Was, wasn't he also on that rebel to one of the rebel tours of South Africa? He, yes, he, he was. He led a rebel captain, tour to South Africa. Is that yeah. he was just he just couldn't he just couldn't keep away. <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary that a cricketer should have been in the papers so much, really. And also, sort of Leo Kleisters as well. I guess it, it, forty caps for Belgium, um, but probably not as famous as his daughter Kim, who uh, won the U.S. Open three times and the Australian Open. A tennis player and she said that her mother was an international gymnast and she said because of my parents I have footballers legs and gymnast flexibility which I don't know it's slightly slightly off-putting combination to me I don't know anyway um I suppose Graham Carr and Alan Carr quite well known um but I've also there's a guy who plays for Le- he's still on Leicester City's books called Fike Bolkaya who was signed as a youth team player from Chelsea, and his uncle is the Sultan of Brunei. Whether that's influenced people on signing, I, don't, I, I hate to say. Brought to mind, one of, was it Gaddafi's son that had a brief football career? Oh yes, he's a per- Perugia. Yes, a slightly, it's like that, that Perugia chairman. Or did he not also sign a Swedish woman into from the Swedish women's team as well? Didn't I think he? he's a bit publicity conscious. Yes, <laughs> as indeed was Colonel Gaddafi. You have to say. <laughs> <laughs> not not his not his worst crime, but you know, no, it's it, added to his to his charge sheet. That's why I also had a Scottish one as well, but very a very obscure, slightly obscure Scottish one, which was a, a guy called John Brown. who was goalkeeper for Clyde when they won the Scottish Cup in 1939. He did play international football for Scotland, maybe one cap, and his brother also was an international footballer for the USA. Um, but his sons, Peter and Gordon, not the pop duo behind World Without Love. Um, were both Scottish rugby internationals and Gordon Brown, Brune Frey Troon, as he was known, he, w- he went on three Lions tours, including the, se- the notorious 74 tour of South Africa, very violent. Um, but he would probably, if, if, a, if a Scotland rugby greatest ever 15 was named, he'd almost certainly be in it. So he was he was more famous than his, his footballing dad. Andy, you mentioned Lovejoy there being the non-football relative, but he did look a bit like a retired footballer and indeed played one or played a footballer, as you mentioned. I think he looks a bit like a playmaker with what journalists called an eye for the ladies. Do any other TV characters of that era or before that could have doubled as footballers or managers come to mind. Shoestring as a no-nonsense centre-half, perhaps. Yeah, I think um, Telly Savalas and his Kojak heyday could have been a a mean centre-half, but then later a manager with surprisingly purist views about keeping the ball on the deck, a bit like a sort of 
Greek-American Tony Mowbray, if you will. Um, <laughs> there's James Bolam as Terry Collier in The Likely Lads. And imagine he could have been a, a lower division fullback who'd stand with his hands clenched around his shirt, cuffs before kickoff, looking really cold. Um, later on, he'd be a coach at a club managed by a teammate and then maybe a manager in non-league. Um, there's John Thor's character in The Sweeney, um, D.I. Regan. Imagine being a, a gritty mid- midfielder playing for various of London and South East teams in the second division, maybe scoring occasional long-range goal and having a, having a, perhaps having a running feud with a first division opponent in the cup time, maybe somebody like Malcolm McDonald, maybe. <laughs> I realise all these references are from the 70s, not the Lovejoy era, but I am what I am. Neither was mine. I only know Shoestring because my mum had a crush on him still into the 90s and I googled him to remember what he looks like but what comes up when you type in shoestring and google images is just loads of thin chips because it's a type of chip now the shoestring fry <laughs> hopefully named in his honour or in honour of his moustache I'm not sure Harry well yes oh, yeah. Trevor Eve of course he, he later made a kind of specialism of a, playing slightly sleazy characters in, in TV dramas sort of teachers who ran off with pupils and that kind of stuff. Because I think in the film Troy, when I, I went to see the film, the, the dreadful film Troy with Brad Pitt with a friend of mine, and he said, because Trevor Eve is the one who 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 exhorts the Trojans to bring the horse into the into Troy, the wooden horse. He's the one he advocates bringing the wooden horse into Troy. And my friend said, "Don't listen to him. It's Trevor Eve." You know, <laughs> obviously the, the Trojans weren't aware of that. Um, I was thinking. Um, uh, surely a, a, a Spurs and a Chelsea midfielder would have been Hazel, the TV detective created by Terry Venables, going even further back into time there. But I did watch an, I, I did watch an episode of this recently on uh, YouTube, and it began with Hazel walking through the West End of London, and he says, most beautiful birds in the world in Oxford Street on a Saturday afternoon. Mind you, most of them are foreign. I thought, well, there we are. <laughs> those, those were the days. Um, and then I thought of Adam Faith as well in Budgie. Surely he'd been a sort of um, Gordon Hill-style winger. And uh, Ian Cuthbertson, who played the uh, the Scottish gangster, Charlie Endell, in the same programme. You know, he does he does sound like a man who would have managed, uh, you know, in the lower divisions of Scotland, quite fierce and maybe smelling of whiskey. It's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? Uh, well, this is from an EP about Red Star Belgrade celebrating their 30th birthday, released in 1975. Again, great, great theme for putting out a record and something that clubs should do now, put out records on your birthday. This is um, called Zvezdina Pesma Rodendanska Pesma, uh, which you know means a star song, birthday song by Zlatko Golubovic, who was a big Yugoslav pop star in the 60s and 70s. And I can imagine him emoting away while singing this on a TV show while wearing a, a suede-fringed jacket. It includes the musical notes on the sleeve, doesn't it, in case you want to learn it yourself? Yeah, and sing along with Zlatko. And 
Harry, your choice. Um, I've gone to um, Torino in Italy um, for Omaggio and Moroni, um, which was a which was a song about the the tragic death of Gigi Moroni. He was a sort of he was kind of the Italian George Best, I suppose would be the easiest comparison. He was a kind of winger who had long hair and a beard. Um, in uh, when he was at Turin, he signed in 1964 for them. Um, he, he caused quite a controversy because he, he lived with his girlfriend who was a German divorcee um, as I say he, he was very interested in art and hung out, there was a big sort of art scene in Italy, in northern Italy in the late uh, 60s, people like Piero Manzoni, most famous for sort of canning his own shit so he, he sort of hung out with people like that um, he was nicknamed one of his hopefully he didn't was, get run there for lunch you didn't, you didn't like, oh, we just, it'd be like, if it was one of those things where Benny Hill had those cans that all the ladies yes. had fallen off. It'd be a Russian roulette, wouldn't it? A, a Russian roulette of soup. You, uh, might, you might get pineapple rings, you might get something else. You might get Pierre, you might get an Italian, a controversial Italian artist's, um, yes, feces. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, so he was, so Moroni was, he was nicknamed La Fafala Granata, the maroon butterfly. And also Beatnik del Gol, the Beatnik of the Gol. Um, and sadly, he was he was crossing the road in Turin in 1960, October 1967. He was hit by a car and died. Um, 20,000 people attended his funeral. Um, and there's sort of extraordinary twist in this story is that the man who was driving the car that killed him was a 19-year-old Torino fan called Attilio Romero. And three, 33 years later, Attilio Romero became president of Torino. Anyway, so this is, a slight, a slight, a slight, as you mentioned, it's a slightly mournful song. Although the man who recorded it, Franco Strada, I looked him up and on Discogs, he did make a number of records and on Discogs, they have a sort of list of the, of the type of song it is. And his songs come up as erotic folk ballads. Um, but anyway, this is, a, this is a slightly sad song, as you would imagine. <laughs> Piange il bravo e buon presidente per la morte del suo beniami. Era nato a Como il Gigino e da lì incomincia a giocare per al Genova poi passare dove presto tutti conquistò. My own choice this time is Peterborough United FC with Posh. We are continuing our link back to Barry Fry, an absolute classic of its genre, and the sleeve must be encountered for the wonderful haircuts and the sideburns of the manager in the centre. Posh we are. Now, every month I'm going to chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time I was joined by Richard Hay from the Aberdeen podcast, Here We Go. Uh, Richard, the recent flogging of Aberdeen players by the First Minister felt a bit like having the headmaster naming smokers in school assembly, didn't it? 
<laughs> yeah, a, a little bit like that. Um, we, you know, we obviously expect it as punishment from within the football authorities, punishment from within the, within the game itself. I, I think it was to some degree, and whenever you make this point in Scotland at the moment, it feels like a political one, but it felt like it was a convenient um, route to attack the privileged footballers idea. I mean, she did actually use that phrase uh, in her in her briefing, which I think we saw from the Conservative government, uh, Matt H Hancock used at the start of the, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, about the taxation of footballers down south, um, and also the bars as well. I thought it was very convenient that those two things sort of combined. Clearly we expected uh, and expect on Friday when the hearing is going to be um, football punishments. It was a bit of a surprise though to be sat watching the First Minister's briefing for an update on the dawns. Tell us about Here We Go. When did you start? What do you do? Why and why the exclamation mark in the name is so important? <laughs> well, we started about five years ago. Um, really three of us uh, that were involved. And really it started because no one else was doing it. No one else was doing an Aberdeen fan-based podcast, just asking fans what they thought of the games. And we thought, well, if no one else is doing it, let's, let's do it. Quite inspired at the time by there was a Motherwell podcast being run by some guys we knew, and, and just the scope and the ambition of that um, inspired us to, to see what we could do with it. But also from, I think, a philosophy point of view. I was 12, 13, about that time when the first Aberdeen fanzine came out, called The Northern Light. It came out about 1988, rather. And... It had a huge impact on me because it was so unlike anything that you were able to read about your club up to that point. You know, I'd existed on a diet of shoot magazine and the back pages of the local press for my Aberdeen news up to that point. It was so eye-opening to see people write smartly, funnily, wittily and caustically about your club. So it was such a huge influence and has been ever since. And we're still very lucky as Aberdeen fans. We've got a publication called The uh, Red Final, which grew out of the ashes of the Northern Light. And that's been going there for 25 years. So if ever I say, you know, I'm finding it a struggle to say something new after five years, I always think how the guys at The Red Final must be thinking after 25 years. We've always taken the approach that those of us running the show are pretty much idiots. You know, we don't have any coaching background or anything like that. So we go about trying to get people on our show who know what they're talking about. And we were very lucky that some top-notch journalists and broadcasters in the UK are Dawn's fans too. And also that they've been so receptive to us and Open's coming on, but also the quality as well. Some of the sort of amateur bloggers, amateur coaches, amateur analysts who've come on and just help try and explain things that, that we're pretty much unable to. On the subject of Pitodri, it looks as though you'll be staying for some time yet. Were most fans against moving out when that looked certain? The surveys that have been taken, I think most people have suggested that they were in favour. I, I think they tend to be about three to one in favour. But, you know, realistically, that's because the people in charge of the club spent about a 15, 20 year campaign of telling us that there's just no future at Pitodri. And more than that, actually not really contributing to the fabric to the upkeep of the fabric of the stadium so that um you've got clearly it's an aging stadium clearly the stands 
need substantial investment. But things which might not cost quite so much money, such as keeping the seats always in colour in one section, that sort of idea. We've had financial trouble over the past 20 years. Clearly, the focus has been on keeping a team on the pitch, keeping people on jobs. But I think it's been pretty clear that the, the message on the board has been helped by not maintaining Picardia to the standards it should have been kept to. So we're in a situation now where I, I think most people accept that we probably have to move, um, that it probably would be cost-effective to move, but ultimately it's going to cost us an awful lot of money to do that. And it's money that we we um, really don't have in place. We don't have any plan to see how that money is going to be put together as well. So whilst I think most people probably accept that um, we will have to move, it's, it's certainly not now one which carries full Aberdeen support behind it. I think we're 20, 25 years on from the great first wave of out-of-stadium moves. And we've seen the pitfalls other clubs have gone through in more than one. Uh, and it, it can be absolutely changing the course of your club. 25 years ago, I think the out-of-town stadium was seen as uh, you know, a great way of attracting new support to your club, attracting families and so on. And good transport connections, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's been, I believe anyway, there's been a change in how that is viewed now. And I think that the attraction of having a stadium right in the city centre, it, it cannot be overlooked. It's that closeness, that feeling of being in the city. I, I, I really think it's absolutely central to to any proper football team. In terms of Pitodri staggeringly and disgustingly many of our listeners will never have been can you describe the ground how would you characterize it take us on a visual and oral tour if you like describe the stands and the swearing the first thing that's going to hit you is the cold it's, it's absolutely going to be the cold it can, it can actually be quite a pleasant summer's day up here that is that, is, that can happen in Aberdeen but if you are within pathology it will immediately feel six seven degrees colder than anywhere else in the city <laughs> I see anywhere else in the city, that and the train station for some reason. I, I talk about microclimate, but that train station is always freezing. Anyway, it's very, very close to the North Sea. Not quite as close as um, I'm sure people have seen photos of the uh, Arbor Skyfield, which is literally on the coast. But we have a golf course separating us from the North Sea. And uh, sometimes it doesn't feel like that in, in the coldest of winter. So. What we have now is a, a, a lopsided affair. Um, ever since there was a stand put up in 1992, which, uh, which replaced a much-beloved form of home end for the club called the Beach End. Uh, we were not very inventive in terms of naming our stands at the The Beach End used to be the, the, the home end, uh, but for the last 10 years of its life, it wasn't uh, for access reasons. It was given to the away support. And that was a, a minor tragedy in itself. But losing the beach end, you're not just losing that sort of spiritual cop style home end. It was about the flow of the ground. The ground used to be this sort of magnificent oval, with proper running track around it, everything. It, it, it had a flow to it. It was still slightly lopsided. Some ends had roofs, some didn't. Obviously, we've been all seated for about 40 years, but it, that was done in a very uh, piecemeal fashion. So. It had that sort of charm, but nothing properly fell out of place. When the new stadium, a new stand went in in 1993, two-tier effort, dwarfing the other stands, 
it immediately was out of place. I mean, people obviously were excited and flocked to it for the first few seasons because it was new and shiny, but immediately the character was scarred by this thing. Good for corporate, good for all those sort of things, good for raising money for the club, absolutely. But in terms of the feel of the place, yeah, forever scarred after that. Uh, sound, I think the Alex Ferguson famously um, spoke about sweetie wrestlers at the Tawdry. And um, it certainly takes us a while to uh, to get really vocal, really behind our team. We take a while to warm to you, I think, is, is the thing about people in the northeast of Scotland. Um, we take a while to warm to you, but once we do, you've got us for life, basically. So um, you won't really find us uh, shouting and bawling from the very first minute in support of you. You might find us shouting and swearing abuse at you, but that's that's an entirely different matter. You know, each stand has its own typical patron, and um, the main stand tends to be where the older the older personnel go to. But boy, that doesn't mean they can't swear. I can tell you, Daniel, that doesn't mean that they can't uh, they can't come out with some filthy abuse, um, and particularly if you're from a Glasgow club. Uh, that's where they reserve their most vitriolic language. <laughs> it all began in glory for you. Tell us about your first game and the feeling of living among, well, such fantastic years. Any Aberdeen fan old enough to sample any of that Alex Ferguson era in the flesh considers, them, considers themselves lucky to have seen it. Um, that said, I, I do kind of wish I'd been a few years older to properly take it all in. Um, obviously, I, I remember the European Cup and Cup win in Gothenburg. I remember watching it at home. I remember getting to go to bed on my Aberdeen strip that night. But, you know, I was seven years old, so you don't take that much in. But my first game was actually 10, years, uh, 10 days later after that win. Uh, it was the Scottish Cup final. So huge crowd at Hamden. 65, 70,000. The old Hamden, uh, to anyone that remembers that, it was uh, quite a, a crumbling shell of a place even, even back then in 1983. But um, one thing I remember from that game is I was in, I wasn't there by myself, but we were in the, uh, what was basically a, a, a called a father and son of a family enclosure. So the old enclosures at Hamden were in front of the main stand, and there were standing areas. and. I was right to the front as kids, the kids went right to the front. And the, the front of that was way below pitch level. So you were basically peering up over the, over the wall. And you got a great view of pe people's boots and socks, but very little view of the far end of the ground. So, um, yeah, my, that's my first recollection of Aberdeen in the flesh is, um, socks and boots. Um, and eventually seeing the cup being created. Um, but following season, full time at Petrodry. And yeah, from the first moment, uh, and it's very much appreciated it, when I first went to a game of Victoria, I was speaking about the colour, the noise, and, you know, just the spectacle of the whole thing. And um, hence why I've become the sad obsessive that you hear today. But I suppose after, you had those few years of success, and it does spoil you in a way. You're grateful to have seen it, but... Yeah, you, you do a lot of clubs, what we've done in the past 25, 30 years, you know, would be a decent return. But for, for a lot of us who have grown up watching us pick up trophy after trophy and then fallen back into relative obscurity, 
it's uh, it's never quite enough. So you, you have this strange feeling of dissatisfaction. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. Make sure you never miss an issue of When Saturday Comes by subscribing today. Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue one in 1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information. Hey, what do you think you're playing at? Come here. Please give us a few stars and a good review on the Apple Podcast app or elsewhere, for instance, in graffiti on a bridge over the M23. OK, I'll leave it up to you and we'll settle up later. Will you be needing anything else, love? No, with this lot and a bit of luck, we'll be fine.